The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, looking back on my childhood, I remember there being times when I chose not to take part in certain activities that my friends did. Uh, sometimes I did, but sometimes I didn't, uh, largely because I had a fear of what the repercussions would be from my parents. In other words, in those moments, my honoring of my parents was more so out of fear for the consequences rather than it was a genuine desire to please them. But as I grew older and matured a little bit more, probably slower than my parents desired, but uh, as I grew more mature, my motivation for honoring them shifted from a fear-based motivation to that more of a love-based motivation. And for me personally, this shift took place when I began to understand, it was late teenage years, when I really began to understand what sacrifices they made for our family. When I started to realize how much those sports leagues cost and how much those new basketball shoes and how much those family vacations cost for a family of six on a very modest budget. They, they sacrificed much for our family. And so when I began to understand more clearly, when I began to understand their sacrifice with that, I began to see their love. And when I began to see their love for me, that, that motivation, it shifted again from one of fear and compulsion to that of desire to please them. And so why do I share that as an introduction this morning? Well, in our passage this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, and we're nearing, we're on the down, downhill stretch of the book of Ephesians. But the, in, in the focal point of our passage this morning, I believe, centers around Ephesians chapter 4, verses 30, where Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And so every moment we are tempted to sin, we are confronted with a choice. Will we honor our God, the Holy Spirit who lives within us, from a heart of desire, or will we choose to grieve him? And much like the transition that took place in, with my relationship with my parents, I think one of the greatest catalysts for living a life that honors the Holy Spirit is by first realizing the love of God for us. And so first, let, let's, let's read the passage this morning, and then we'll talk about that, and then we will we'll get into the heart of our passage. Let, let's read it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these words on a page and make them reality in our lives. That you would impress them on our minds, that you would shape our hearts with these truths and that you would move our wills to obey your word. So now I pray, Holy Spirit, come be at work among us, be at work within us, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word during this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, so, so first, let's, let's look and see this morning. I want us to look and see what it means to live a spirit-filled life. That, that's the antonym, right, of living a spirit-grieved life. And, and so why can we grieve the Holy Spirit? I'm not asking how do we grieve the Holy Spirit. What I'm asking is why do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Why is it possible for us to grieve the Holy Spirit? That, that word grieve, it literally means to cause pain. And, and so why do we bring, why can we bring pain upon the Holy Spirit when we sin? Well, it's because he loves us. First John 4, 8 says, God is love. The Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit, he is love. How many parents in this room have had instances where your children have made poor choices that have led to their detriment? You don't have to, okay, Mick, I was going to say, don't have to raise hands there, but Mick was eager on that one. Uh, That's funny. Uh, But when they do that, right, when they do that, it grieves your heart, right? It brings pain on your heart because you love them and because you desire the very best for them. You want them to flourish in life and to pursue righteousness. Well, if that is true for you, as you love your children with an imperfect love, how much more true is that of the Holy Spirit who loves you with an unfailing, flawless, perfect, steadfast love? And so I just want to ask you this morning, do you know that you are loved? That you are perfectly loved by God the Spirit. A lot of times when we think of the Trinity, we think of God the Father, God the Son, and then there's that God the Spirit over there, kind of tucked in the corner. But, but he is in, actively involved in our lives. He, he is at work within us because he loves us. And, and so listen, it is often those who don't feel secure in the love of another who choose to make self-destructive decisions in life, right? And so let me ask that again, that despite your sin, despite your falls, despite your areas of life and your times in life where you feel unlovely, do you realize that you are perfectly loved by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? In fact, one of the works of the Spirit Paul says in Romans chapter five, verse five, is that he pours the love of God into your hearts. And so I just want to linger a little bit more on this point. As Christians, we're not just servants of God. 
No, we are full-fledged, blood-bought sons and daughters of the living God. To, to borrow a phrase from the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a children's uh, 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 Bible that, that we read to the kids every now and then. You are loved with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, always-and-forever love. I think some of you in this room, maybe you struggle with really believing and really feeling that you are dearly loved by God. You feel yourself to be unworthy of love, and so you project that feeling onto God himself. You think, okay, I know the Bible says I know he loves me. But he, I mean, if he knows me, he knows me more than I know myself. And so he really couldn't have an affectionate desire to draw near to me and to be with me. But listen, brother, sister, this morning, why else would the Holy Spirit reside within you? Why else would he live within you unless he desires you? Unless he desires to be with you, to dwell with you. He doesn't do so out of a sense of obligation just to fulfill a promise that Jesus gave to us in the book of John. No, he lives within you because he loves you, because he desires you, because he cares for you, and because he seeks to work holiness within you. And so one of the greatest fights of faith is for us to really believe that truth. And we, when we are secure in the love of God, it will fuel a life of obedience and holiness to him. The greatest catalyst to holy living is by rejoicing in God's personal, his intimate, his paternal, his loyal, his sacrificial, his committed, his eternal, his limitless, his patient, and his perfect love for you individually this morning. He is your father. And so when you truly experience the love of God, it will produce a desire for greater holiness because you will want to with you will want a greater manifestation of his presence within you. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you seeking then to honor the Holy Spirit from a heart of desire? Have you, have you experienced his love for you? And then are you seeking to live a spirit-filled life? Or maybe this morning, would you say honestly that you have been living a spirit-grieved life? This morning, we will see that a gospel-driven and a spirit-filled life is three, three things. A good, good Baptist preacher this morning. It's three things. Number one, it is truthful and life-giving in speech. Number two, it is honest and generous in living. And then finally, it is decisive and genuine in forgiving. So first, it is truthful and life-giving in speech. Read with me verse 25, where the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, and this is in line with, this is looking back to what we spoke about last week, right? The putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man. And Paul continues that thought in verse 25 when he says, therefore putting, having put away, or your translation might say having put off. I think that's the better translation here. It's again, it's that picture of putting off the old garments of the old self. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And so as followers of Jesus, we are people of the truth. 
Not only do we believe the truth as followers of the one who is the truth, our lives should also be marked by truthfulness and integrity. Because not only is lying and deception an affront to God, it also unravels, as Paul says here, right? We, we speak the truth to, to build up one another. It also unravels the trust and the unity within the church. Here, Paul is practically applying what he previously said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, that we are to speak the truth in love to one another. Again, we are to be a people who speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth with one another. Right? The truth should resound within our hearts and in our inner being. We should desire to live lives of integrity. Our, our world right today seeks whatever means necessary for self-advancement. Right? So if I have to lie a little bit or exaggerate on my resume to get an interview, no big deal. A little white lie didn't hurt anybody. If I have to conflate the truth to make myself look a little bit more favorably to others, no problem, right? Or even maybe more egregiously, if I have to outright lie in order to attain what I desire, then no harm, no foul, because I get what I want. That's the spirit of our world and our culture today. It's self-advancement and self-attainment at any cost, even at the cost of truth. And that's the case because we live in a postmodern, post-truth culture. And so as Christians, as a way to stand out as lights in this world, we need to be people of truth. Yes, in what we believe. But yes, also in how we live and how we speak to one another. So our speech is to be marked by truthfulness and integrity, Paul says in verse 25. But also, Paul says that our speech in verse 29 is to be marked by purity and peace. Let's read verse 29. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And that word corrupt, it literally means counterfeit. And so another way we could put it is this, maybe in the Gillum Standard Version, I don't know. But you could say it this way. But let no speech that is counterfeit to your new life in Christ and unbecoming of a Christian flow from your lips. This must not be so. Proverbs 26, verse 19, it says that it is the reckless fool who deceives his neighbor, right, with his speech. And then says, ah, I'm only joking. In your speech. Are you walking in a manner that is worthy of your calling? I'm going to consistently reference that verse in Ephesians, uh, forgive me, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of, worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Because everything else in verses 4 through 6, is, it flows from that command. And so this passage, it's just an outworking. Are you living a life? Is your speech in line with the calling to which you've been called as a follower of Jesus? Is it befitting of someone who is a member of the royal family of God? Listen, our speech, it matters to the Lord. It matters greatly to the Lord. How we speak to fellow image bearers of God, it either delights, it pleases him, or it grieves the Holy Spirit. 
In Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Our our speech, it matters to the Lord. And so I just want to be very, very practical here. If you are content maybe to slam or to, and I'm not saying this, I've not heard this. And so I'm not saying this reactionary church, please hear me. But, but, but if you are content to slam or to slander another person with your speech without any remorse or any conviction, it could be evidence, right? That you're not a Christian, that the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell within you. Do, do we do that at times and impulsively and, and not in self-control? Yes, that happens. That can happen. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of that such that we repent. We turn from our ways and we progress forward seeking to kill that sin within us. And so, listen, if you're just content, man, to slam and to slander, then, then, then it could be either that you have quenched the Holy Spirit so much that, that, that his work is not efficacious within you, that it's not effective within you, or it could mean that he does not dwell within you. Will we be perfect in our speech? Not at all, right? Will we sin in the things we say and how we say what we say? Yes, we will. In fact, in speaking on the power of the tongue, James, he said this. It's very, this is very well known to you. But he says this. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue, it's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue, it is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on the fire the, the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And he goes on to say, every beast, every bird, that they, they have been tamed, but, but the tongue, it cannot be tamed. It's a restless evil. And he goes for, and he continues, I'm skipping for time's sake, but he continues in verse 11. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And so in other words, what James is saying here is that it's futile, ultimately futile, futile to try to tame your tongue. Yes, we need to put, as David said, a watchman over our words. We need to guard what we say. We need to, in maybe common parlance, we need to put a filter up so that we are careful in what we say. But we should focus more so on having our hearts renewed in the truth. And that, that's the whole point of James's analogy, that, that, that a salt pond doesn't yield fresh water. Jesus said, from the overflow of the, the heart, the mouth speaks. And so listen, a heart that is conformed to the flesh will bring forth corrupting speech that tears down. But a heart that is being transformed by the truth of the gospel will bring forth life-giving speech that builds one another up. And so just maybe a quick question. And if you are so bold, maybe you can do this exercise uh, this afternoon. But how would your spouse your children, your family, your neighbors, your fellow church members, your co-workers, how would they describe the overall flavor and tenor of your speech? Would they overwhelmingly say that it is gracious, it is loving, 
It is joyful, it is peaceful, it is patient, it is kind, it is virtuous and loyal and gentle, and it is self-controlled. That your speech, it's marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Or, or would they answer by saying that your speech, it's not marked by the fruit of the Spirit, but it's still largely marked by the fall of Adam. That is vengeful, unloving, negative, full of strife, impatient, mean, debased, slanderous, harsh, impulsive. So again, is your speech, is it marked more by the fruit of the Spirit or by the fall of Adam? During, during the season of life of parenting young children who have not yet developed the aforementioned filter, uh, I, I am frequently having to ask one of our kids who will be unnamed to protect the guilty. Uh, but I have to ask this child uh, this question frequently in this season of life. Do we use our words to build people up or do we use our words to tear people down? Right. And so always encouraging. I almost I almost slipped there. Child, build, use your words to build people up. In Proverbs 18, verse 21, it says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 10, 11, it says that the mouth of the righteous, it is a fountain of life. In other words, your speech, the right speech of the righteous is life giving to people. But the mouth of the wicked, it conceals violence. And find another reference here, Proverbs 15, 4, a gentle tongue. It is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And so regarding the power of our words, the power that we do have with our words, one commentator, he wrote this. He said, the words we say are important because they expose the condition of our hearts. Sometimes our words can be our own worst enemy. A critical spirit will speak disparaging words, a bitter heart, stinging words, a self-righteous heart, judgmental words, a thankless heart, words of complaint. On the other hand, a loving heart will speak uplifting words, a contented heart, words of faith, a humble heart, words of acceptance, a joyful heart, words of gratefulness, love, contentment, humility, and joy. These qualities within ourselves will help us to speak life to one another. And so I just want to ask again, church, is your speech, are your words, are they marked by life or by death? Are they life giving to others or do they take life from others? Maybe another way to put it, a heart that is changed by grace is a, is a mouth that will speak words of grace to one another. And, and so the greatest, it, if you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now, as I was in part during my prep, I just want to encourage you, be renewed. Seek to be, don't, don't seek to just change the words you say. Seek to have your heart renewed in the grace of God. And when your heart is full of God's grace, your mouth will spring forth words of grace to other people. A gospel-driven and spirit-filled life, it is, get back, to my, get back to my notes, it is truthful and it is life-giving in speech. But also, secondly, it is honest, honest and generous in living. Let's read verse 28 here. Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so I don't have time this morning to give you a full biblical theology on work. But Paul is very clear in saying here that work, it is a good thing. And that our work is an opportunity to bring glory to God. Indeed, God gave Adam and Eve work to do prior to the fall, preceding the fall. And so work, it is not a result of the fall. Rather, it is a component of God's creative design. And it is a condition for human flourishing. And so maybe to, to pair the two together, when we speak even about our work with our coworkers, is it full of complaint or is it full of giving life? Is it full of thankfulness to God for the work he's given you? Or is it full of complaint for the labor involved in the work? And so though the work is a good gift from God, at the same time as Christians, we do recognize that due to the fall and due to the curse of sin, our work is now comprised of thorns and thistles. And that it now consists of right sweat and labor and wearisome toil. toil. That's literally what that, that word there, labor, what Paul used for labor, it, it, the, it means of sweat and wearisome toil, right? And so as Christians, we should recognize two things regarding work. Yes, it is a good gift from God, but also that it is a laborious endeavor because of the fall. And so I want to encourage you this morning to pursue this good gift from God with vigor and with purpose. And to seek to develop or cultivate or continue within you a strong work ethic. Because as Christians, we realize that work, it's not a necessary evil that we have to do in this lifetime. But in fact, again, it is a good gift from the Lord that promotes human flourishing. And so Paul says our work should be, should be honest work, both in the type of work that we do and in the quality of work that we perform. First, we're only to pursue work that is ethical, right? Like the hope that goes without saying. But work, work that is ethical and that brings mutual benefit and value to society. But also, Paul says, we are to pursue honesty by the quality of work that we do. You see what he says, let the thief no longer steal. Implying that honest work, it doesn't shortchange your employer, but that you put a good hard day's worth of work into it for what you will receive from your employer or from your customer. I, I used to have, I don't anymore, but I, I used to have Colossians 3 verses 20 through 21 on a little sticky note on my computer monitor at work. And, and just as a reminder for me. And, and honestly, as a, uh, as, a, as a point of opportunity when I, was in the, when I was in the office to have conversations with coworkers. But it says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Heaven is waiting you. So work hard. Heaven awaits you. And he ends by saying this. You are serving the Lord Christ. And just to give you context of that passage, church. Paul is speaking to those who are bond servants. To those who are slaves. To those who aren't doing maybe the the most gratifying work uh, to themselves. He's saying work hard. Work heartily because you're not you're not you're not working for your master. You're not working for your employer. You're not working for a paycheck. You're not working hard ultimately for a promotion or to please the boss. No, Paul says in your work, you are working for Jesus. You're so with that because of that, we are to work heartily 
And we are to work eagerly in whatever we are doing because we are working for and we are serving the Lord. And so listen, the, the Lord, he's not more pleased with me when I am doing my pastoral work than when I am doing my engineering work. Yes, God is, has uniquely gifted and called me to the ministry, but this work, it's not inherently better. There's, there's not a, a difference between the sacred and the secular. All work is good work if it is done for the glory of God. And so the Lord is less concerned about what you do for work than he is more concerned about how you do your work. Work, it is good because work is a gift from God. Yes, it's marred by sin. Yes, we take part of it through sweat and toil, but we do so with joy, knowing that our work is an opportunity to put God on display. And just as a... a, I am I am hesitant to give positive examples, uh, positive illustrations from my life, but uh, but just as an example, how how this can promote even our witness among our coworkers. There, there, at my former work in Oklahoma City, at my first engineering firm, there was a coworker who was maybe a little bit cantankerous, a little bit difficult to work with. Uh, you never knew quite was what was going to come out of his mouth uh, when when you went over to his desk to ask a question, right? And so he wasn't the easiest guy to work with. Or, or even to connect with on a relational level. Uh, but through working hard alongside him on projects, I was able to gain his respect. And then, then after gaining his respect, was able to, hey, hey, do you want to grab lunch? And through having lunch, I was able to share the gospel with him. And so listen, the way we work, if we work hard with a strong work ethic, not only does it bring glory to God in the work we do, but it also increases our witness among those we work with growing up my mom she used to say and maybe 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 y'all have uh you ladies in this room or, or men you have said this as well but my mom used to say idle hands are the devil's workshop and uh and to an extent that can be very true right remember when did david look upon bathsheba and consequently commit adultery it, it was when he chose to stay back rather than to fight with his forces and it was when he sat idly by in the afternoon on his chair rather than taking concern to the affairs of the nation. It was in idleness that David looked upon Bathsheba and therefore committed adultery. And so I just want to encourage you that in whatever season of life that God would have you, if you are physically able to, I'm not saying working necessarily as a vocation because I know many are retired, but, but, but there is still, even in retirement, there is good work to do that God has put before you. And so whatever season of life that you find yourself in, don't sit around and just wait for the right opportunity to come your way before you start working. And again, if you're retired, don't view this last season of your life, maybe before you meet the Lord, as a chance to spend time just in idleness and for yourself. Rather, in whatever season of life God would have you, avail yourself to do the work he has put in front of you. Pursue meaningful work. And again, this will look different if you're 75 versus when you were 20. But even still, I want to encourage you, church, guard against forms of idleness because remember work it isn't a necessary evil that we try to escape from it rather it's a good gift from god that we are to pursue
Proverbs 14, 23, it says, In all toil there is profit, but mere talk only leads to poverty. Finally, regarding work and the goodness of work, Paul says this, What what, what should be the motivation for why we work? He says, So that we may have something to share with anyone in need. The, The motivation for our work, what's the motivation for the work in our world? Right? It's to get a lot of money and to become really, really, really wealthy. But the motivation of a Christian should be, yes, we want to provide for our family. But also, as we receive more provision from God from our work, the more generous we can become with that provision to others. So the reason we work hard isn't to amass greater fortunes and, as Jesus said, to build bigger barns for ourselves. No, the reason we work hard and with honesty Paul says is so that we have something to share with those in need, that, that we have provision to help provide for others. And so I just want to I want to speak this blessing over you and maybe even as a prayer uh, for you in regard to your work. It comes from Psalm 90 verse 17, where the psalmist says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, may he establish the work of our hands. That's a good prayer for us to continue to pray uh, as we put our hands to the plow and as we do good work unto the Lord in this lifetime. A gospel-driven and a spirit-filled Christian is known for the honesty of his or her strong work ethic and for the generosity that his or her work ethic enables. And finally, quickly, a gospel-driven and a spirit-filled Christian is decisive and genuine in forgiving. You'll, you'll notice verses 26 through 27, and we had this discussion in the Sunday school time. What, what, what in the world is Paul saying when he says, be angry and do not sin? Well, as Christians, as we grow in holiness, we will grow in a corresponding proportional hatred for sin. And so we should, at times, right, become angry. We should be angered righteously when we witness injustices take place, when we witness wrongdoing, when we witness people being taken advantage of. And and we talked about it this morning. A clear example of that, right, is when Jesus, in anger, in righteous anger, he goes and he clears the temple because he saw that there were a group of people who were taking a system of sacrifice that was meant to bring glory to God, and they were contorting that and they were perverting that to be a system of greed and predation rather rather than helping enabling people to worship God they were taking advantage of people who were coming to the temple and so in anger because of the injustice that he saw Jesus cleared out the injustice that was taking place and so there can be right responses of anger to the injustices in our world. But even in our righteous anger, it should be short-lived, right? Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger because any anger left unchecked and any anger left undealt with in our hearts, it will always, always, always lead to greater sin. So maybe a quick word, why do we get angry? Why do we become angry in life? Or we become angry when things we love become threatened. And so what angers us often the most 
is when what we love the most, namely ourselves, when we are threatened by others. And you'll notice verses 26 through 27, anger, it is the most destructive, I'm convinced it's the most destructive emotion in the world. More hearts have been hardened and hollowed out. More relationships have been destroyed. More marriages have been damaged. More friendships have been broken by unrepentant anger than anything else. There, there are times in life, so how do we respond when we become angry? First, we repent of that sin of anger. But then secondly, let's go to verses 31 through 32, where Paul says that, that, that as we repent of that sin, the way we move forward is to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And so there are times in life when we won't feel like forgiving, right? That command in verse 32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. There's going to be times when you don't feel like doing that. Right? There's going to be times in your marriage, there's going to be times with that coworker or that neighbor who has wronged you, where you don't feel like forgiving them. But even in those moments, we must make the decision to forgive. And as we make that decision to forgive, the Holy Spirit will then honor that. And he will work to produce the spirit of forgiveness within us. But we don't wait for the feeling of forgiveness to forgive We make that decision to honor Christ, to obey him. And then the Holy Spirit will bring the spirit of forgiveness as a result. Many times forgiveness, it's a decision-based action, not a feelings-based action. And so some of you right now maybe are entrapped and enslaved. Nobody else may know it, but some of you maybe are entrapped and enslaved by your angerness and your bitterness because of your unwillingness to forgive someone who has wronged you in the past. Maybe it's something that occurred last week, or maybe it's something that occurred decades ago. And so since that weed of anger wasn't decisively uprooted within your heart, it has now grown up within you. And that anger has now turned into bitterness. And now your entrenched bitterness to this person has affected, if not ended, every aspect of your relationship with them. And so maybe as a way to test this, right? How do, how do I know if this is taking place? Maybe do you, do you find yourself regularly being triggered and quick-tempered when you're around an individual? At the, at the smallest slight, you get angry. Well, if so, it could be because there is an underlying entrenched bitterness toward that person within your heart. And so there's a disproportionate response of anger to that person as a result. And if that is the case this morning, my prayer has been that, that, that some of you, maybe many of you right in this room, would find freedom from the enslavement of bitterness this morning. That the Holy Spirit would produce a work of repentance within you so much so that you become free from any indwelling bitterness that remains within you. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning. That you are to let all, all, all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, all that to be put away from you, to be put off. Again, he's mirroring verse 25. Put off the old self, for you are a new creation in Christ. And so I I have some six points of application how to 
go to bed anger-free and at peace, but I'll put that in the newsletter because we're running out of time this morning. So, uh, so I'll put that in the newsletter. Um, but I just want to end with this. The way we are enabled to forgive is first by realizing the great forgiveness God has shown toward us in Christ. It is the gospel, the truth of the gospel that motivates our living. Gospel identity, we talked about, leads to gospel living. And so that's why daily, 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 we should, our first prayer of the day should be renewing, renew me, Father, in the truth of the gospel. Remind me that I am secure in your love. Remind me that I am forgiven, that my sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Remind me that I am justified perfectly accepted in the beloved before your sight. Because when we know the great forgiveness God has shown us, we will forgive those who have done lesser sins against us. And again, we don't have time, but just jot down. You might want to jot down this reference and read it. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35, where Jesus talks about the unforgiving servant. If we are forgiven of such a great debt, how can we not forgive those who have uh, wronged us with much a smaller debt? In conclusion, I just want to ask, are you living a spirit-filled life or a spirit-grieved life? Are you being truthful and life-giving in your speech? Are you being honest and generous in your living? Are you being decisive, not letting the sun go down on your anger, and genuine in your forgiving Again, some of you, maybe today is the day where you'll be freed from an enslavement of bitterness. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.